I often think that I don't have ideas, ideas have me. You know, once you, once an idea grabs you, you're in service to the idea. And I'm still in service to this idea at the moment that I think businesses are rubbish at measuring employee experience, that they, they do it really badly. And so Friday Pulse is my answer to that. So at the moment, I'm very much in a sort of execution mode with that, which is that this is an idea that has gripped me for the last eight years. I've now worked out what my Nick approach to it is and i kind of just want to spread that to the world at the moment so this idea of measuring weekly experience building up timelines for businesses putting data right under their nose every week about how every team's feeling so that they can respond when things go badly how do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left what's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion. Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. On this episode, I speak with the independent policy advisor, speaker, statistician, and author who is best known for his work on the Happy Planet Index. His studies have included a MA in Mathematics and Management Studies from the University of Cambridge, a Diploma in Counselling and Psychotherapy, a Masters of Science and Operations Research, and a Masters of Science Change in Agent Skills and Strategies at the University of Surrey. His career includes being the founder of Center for Wellbeing at the New Economics Foundation, being the CEO and founder of Happiness Works and Friday Pulse. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a leader in happiness, well-being and quality of life and a person who has had a fascination with the power of twos, Nick Marks. Nick, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you very much. The powers of two, yeah. (laughs) beautiful and talking about the powers of two i know that was something that kind of fascinated you as a child you know can you give us a bit of an insight where you grew up and and what was life like for you so i was born into um a a relatively wealthy middle class family my my father and grandfather were business guys they set up a large confectionery business um actually my great-grandfather founded it in 1907 so i sort of come from this line of sort of I mean, he was effectively a startup entrepreneur in the East End of London before the First World War. And uh, but my grandfather really grew the business and my father consolidated and grew it internationally. And then uh, uh, so I was born in a, in a, into a wealthy family. Um, I was very lucky. I had a loving mother, loving father. Um, so a, a securely attached childhood. And uh, I was. Uh, yeah, I was interested in power too. I used to climb into bed with my dad and try and get one higher each week, you know, two, four, eight. I don't know why that was. It was just just what was. And and I used to even have a very odd habit when I was an early teen of like 
always wanting to walk steps in pairs of two. So if I if I got to 32, I then had to work out if I was going to start again or <laughs> I don't know. It was just a sort of interest in patterns, I guess. That's what I end up doing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I went to boarding school in, in UK and was just top of maths all the way through. And so ended up at Cambridge reading maths before I'd even made a decision, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And, and obviously we're talking, we're going to talk quite a bit about happiness today. And, and you know, for a lot of people out there, they think of uh, their family owning confectionery, would have been really happy as a child. <laughs> you know, we, we used someone that used to kind of dive into the, the confectionery store and, and take some of the lollies or, or were you kind of someone who stayed away from the sugar? You'd think I did because I'm quite a chubster. And, um, but um to be honest, there weren't sweets around my family house, actually. Dad didn't really bring them home. Um, and um, occasionally on a Saturday, he, you know, he, it was still in the time when quite a lot of people worked Saturday mornings and went into the office. And he'd sometimes take me in and, and there I could raid some sweets, but they weren't really at home. Uh, and in fact, sorry, I just remembered I used to sit in the window counting London buses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the counting was there when I used to go into his office. But um, no, we didn't have a lot of sweets around, but, um, but it was a sweet thing so it wasn't quite Willy Wonka I'm afraid. <laughs> now obviously you know during those formative years while you were at at high school and and obviously you know it sounds like your your dad and your granddad and, and that had quite a bit of influence on you but was there someone outside of the family who had quite an impact on you and, and kind of the way you looked at the world at that age? Um, I mean there were some teachers at school, but my sort of big influences came more in my 20s. And there definitely were people that were great mentors to me then. Um, and probably three are worth saying. So one was a, a great management thinker called Charles Handy. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a he was a professor at London Business School, wrote a lot of books. And he was a sort of friend of my father and my uncles who also worked in the business. And, and Charles was really good in that he, I was a very ambitious young man and, um, uh, there was a family company, but it was actually being sold about that time. And he, he gave me great advice, which was he said that really, unless you're a sportsman, which you might well have been, but I wasn't. Um, he said, really, men don't really achieve much until their 40s. So try lots of things. And so and that encouraged me to branch out from maths into doing other things. So I, I got interested in psychotherapy. I trained as a psychotherapist. Uh, my mother was a family counselor, so she was a sort of influence on me. But I and so probably the second person was the person who was my guide and therapist through those years. And she was an American woman called Nan Beecher Moore. And she was this brilliant, older, wise woman. And um, and she was she was brilliant because she she sort of helped me think through what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I was training as a therapist, I used to go and see her every week. That's what you do. And and it was great to have this older, wise woman give you some steering. Um, she was very, very interesting. She used to be a friend of Marilyn Monroe when she was young. I mean, she was a, a very interesting character. Um, and then the third one was that later on in the late 80s, early 90s, I started working with a Chilean economist called Manfred Max Neef. And, and he really helped me think about what I could do with my statistics sort of in service of, you know, of bigger goals. So really there were those three through my twenties and, and I needed some guidance. I don't, I think everyone young needs some guidance mm. and I needed some from outside the family and, and they were my three big mentors. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, for you going through that time where mathematics was so strong for you, um, throughout your schooling years and it obviously continues to be, 
when you went into university and you started to study it in, in a bit more in depth and in things like decision making, what did you start to understand about the world when it came to statistics? So I, I was lucky to be, you know, old enough now or young enough then that we were before big computing. So, you know, I mean, my first computing was on punch cards, you know, it was literally that, that long ago. And um, so by the time I got to university, obviously we had, we had PCs and things going on, but we didn't have big computing power. So the big thing I learned was how to structure a problem so you could solve it. And that you had to simplify complex systems in, in what I studied. And so, we, yes, I did decision making, simulation models. Queuing theory was a particular favorite of mine. Queues still make me angry when I see them badly designed. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and how you, how, how you, how you model that. And I think that served me very well because ultimately my work becomes about, yes, measuring, but also creating simple ways of improving well-being and I think I think that that training helped me a lot at that time so I, I ended up not being a mathematician but being an applied statistician like you know I, I sometimes jokingly say that statistics numbers are my weapon of choice and that they're, they're they're my they're my sword in which to sort of uh, you know be do stuff on work on sustainability social justice happiness whatever it's like stats is my is my sword <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, you talked about in there about counseling, et cetera. And so how did that, you know, obviously with counseling where you do a lot of asking questions and listening, how did you, you know, obviously for you thinking about how you can problem solve and decision make and, and, and simplify things in life, did that, that experience as a counselor where you had to really think about what was the right question to ask to get a great answer and, and be ready to, ref, to kind of receive that? Yeah, when I started in counseling, they were sort of entirely separate parts of my life, really. You know, I had my work and my statistics and, and the counseling therapy bit was just sort of my personal interest. And I, I don't know how you were as a young man, but I, I was a little lost in the sense that I didn't quite know how to be a man in a world I found a bit misogynous and, and you know, had come from a, uh, you know, a sort of patriarchal society like like Britain, you know, which is still quite hierarchical, but it was even more so before and even more male dominated. And I was trying to think, well, how do I do that? And I came from, you know, it was a family business, but, you know, to be honest, my grandfather was quite patriarchal. You know, he was quite the, the big man, you know, uh, my father was was much gentler, but, um, um, you know, so I, I was trying to work it out. And so counseling was my thing for that. But what it became is that the two have merged and in a way, Nan, my my therapist guy was really helpful much she used to say that in counseling a counselor only really does three things in that they listen to their clients and they reflect back to them so they can hear it and understand it and then they ask deepening questions that can help them understand it more and i think of my statistics as exactly the same so instead of at a personal level they tend to be at a system level but you 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 ask questions that's that's you know you listen uh you reflect back with your reports or your or your you know your data and then, you know, you interpret it and help them ask and, 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 and understand things more. And so in a way, I do see them as the same, which I, I guess is quirky, but it, I think it's the power of my statistical work is actually the therapeutic sort of influence on it. Hmm. And, you know, do the numbers um, ever lie? It's probably, you know, we hear that quite often, right? <laughs> I, I, th I mean, it really depends how you structure your questions. I mean, you, you can find statistics that support your, your preconceptions very, very easily. What you have to do, in my opinion, is, is ask the questions and listen to the data. So in that way, 
I think it can really remove your biases and your prejudices mm -hmm. because we all have hypotheses about, you know, whether it doesn't really matter what it is about people that are different from us or, or even people that are the same as they seem similar to us. You know, we think they're these things. But if you look at the data, it gives you real answers. So, you know, and a classic example of that is like, you know, looking at data on happiness in the UK. And most people would think, you know, London is the center. It's the place it all exists. You know, turns out it's the least happy region in the UK. Mm. You know, the happiest places are, are rural, uh, are places where people are stable, where they've been there for a long time. They've got good social relationships. London's this melting pot and hugely unequal. So you have this, you know, it's London's fine if you've got money, but of course, most people in London don't have enough money. So, you know, so, so I think data keeps me honest as long as I ask the questions and really listen to the data, you know, then it keeps me honest. Yeah, you know, th you know, thinking about happiness, which we're obviously going to delve into quite a bit here. You know, I've lived in five countries and, and I think about it, the, the places that I visited where they were third world, poor, had hardly anything, they seemed to be the happiest. They had a very simple life. And when I reflect back to other places where I've lived where people were quite affluent um, and have everything possible available to them if they want it, never seem to be satisfied or fulfilled in life. Whereas, I don't know, there, there was something about it that those who have the more simple life tend to enjoy it and have fun and, and seem to be more vibrant. There's a lot of things in there. So um, vibrancy is very interesting. And um, so the data does not support your, your, your mm. hypothesis. Um, that does not mean to say there's not a large display of positive emotions. So when we look at positive emotions, joy, uh, vibrancy, uh, so that sort of vitality feeling. Yes, we do see in, say, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, we see a lot of vibrancy, but we also see a lot of fear. We see a lot mm. of suffering. We saw a lot, we, we see, and, and people are more satisfied with their lives in developed Western economies than sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but there are really interesting differences. So, I mean, you can take regions of the world like Latin America and compare it to Central Eastern Europe, former Soviet countries. They've got similar levels of GDP, similar levels of life expectancy, very different levels of happiness, much, much happier in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And it's driven by family, by participation, by that sort of, uh, well, you shouldn't say joie de vivre, that's French, what you say, prior vida in the sort of Spanish, the, the, you know, the good life. Um, and um, and, and, and the, that comes out in the data, whereas, you know, you can see countries like Nigeria, where we've got good data, there's a lot of joy, but there's also a lot of negative emotions. And so when you balance those out and you ask people, like, how are their lives going overall, they score much lower. Hmm. You know, so for why, why for you was, is quality of life sort of driving everything you do? Why for me? Well, I mean, I think that partly coming from a position where I was um, brought up in a, I, I, I actually really hand on heart didn't realize that my family was quite as wealthy as it was. We were quite modest, but they had a family business. And so everything was about the business in my dad's. No, no, no he had, he sailed as well. And he, he had a, a big hobby and a big, a big, uh, a, a big business. Actually, not so much time for us kids. Us kids will say, you know, our father was a little absent, you know, not that he wasn't loving. He was sort of benign neglect, that sort of style of parenting. Um, and my mother kind of was the heart of the family, like a lot of families in the 60s, 70s. That's how it was. Yeah. But um, so so um, 
when the family business got sold in my 20s, I was a little lost. I, you know, suddenly there was quite a lot of cash around. And um, so I had enough money to buy a house. You know, this is really rare in your 20s, you know, to, and I and I and I also kind of lost a sense of direction in that I kind of assumed I'd go into the family business, although it was not demanded of me. My father had no choice. He absolutely was going in or, or there was a shotgun sort of thing. I mean, he had no choice. Uh, I my dad rebelled against that and just gave us as much choice as we could do as kids, which is good parenting. But I kind of assumed I'd go into it. So I was a little lost in that way in that I, I knew I, I knew I'd been to Cambridge. I knew I was bright, you know, and I knew I had something to give and I had to go and find it. And it seemed to me that that money was one part of the equation of quality of life, but absolutely not the whole of it. So I guess, you know, if I look back retrospectively, this wasn't conscious, but I guess that I started to think, can I measure it? Mm. <laughs> and yeah, that's what I do. So, you know, and, and, and it explored that whole thing. And, and so I, I think that's the sensitivity I come with it, is understanding that, that, of course, financial security is important, but lots and lots of money does not make you happy. And, um, and I, I've seen that in my extended family. And I, and I think we all know that. Um, but absolutely not having enough isn't but there are these other things that go on and i kind of guess i've tried to tease those out over the years yeah so, so when you first started looking at can you can you really dive in and understand the statistics or, or kind of the what's behind the wellness factor and, and, and quality of life is there something from your early kind of research where you look back now and go wow we had that totally wrong uh, I think that I was uh, dismissive of how important uh, money was at the beginning. I think I, I kind of bought into that whole thing. Money doesn't buy you happiness at the very beginning. And, you know, and I don't think that's true anymore. So I think it has a, a bigger effect than I realized at the beginning. Um, uh, the, but it has a there's, a, there's a top end to it, definitely. Um, but um, what did I think? Um I don't know, when you get into the counselling therapeutic world, you, you can get quite drawn into that. I was definitely drawn into that for four or five years. You know, uh, I loved it. You do kind of need to emerge out of that. Otherwise, I think you can go up your own. Yeah. And uh, and and I and I and I think that understanding that I had something to contribute, it wasn't just about me, you know, sort of, you know, I, I got a little into meditation and stuff like that. And you can get into this space where you kind of think you want to transcend or something. And in the end, I kind of thought, no, I'm here. You know, I don't know. I don't really know what I think there. And so it's like, what do I do here? So I, I got very into thinking about spirituality and, um, and, and sort of meaning and purpose and really came down in the conclusion it's about what we give to the world rather than somehow I'm some special person that does something. I just think it's about what do we contribute and therefore just get on and do that, Nick. So, you know, you know, like you were saying before we started, you said you're very hungry for success as a young man. I think I was hungry to do stuff and, 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 and that motivation has served me very well in life. Mm. You, when you look at, uh, when we say, look, when we look at countries and that have looked at kind of the well-being of a, of a country and tried to measure that, you know, in past decades, you know, what, what, when was kind of the shift where people started to understand the importance of, of well-being being a, a huge part of, of the, of what we do in our life and, and measuring that versus say measuring GDP or, or, or measuring, you know, the, the financial status of a country. So I first published in 94 
on a quality of life indicator. It was called the ISCW, the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. And I, I did it partly with Manfred, partly with a guy who's now a professor at University of Surrey called Tim Jackson. And when I did it with Tim. Manfred just sort of steered, steered me a bit towards it. Um, and it was basically a huge cost-benefit analysis of the economy and saying, like, this is what's good, this is what isn't. So, you know, we can think about our expenditure in that way. And when we published it, you were really trying to have to knock on people's doors to try and get anyone to read this and do it, you know. Whereas by the time I published Happy Planet Index, which is 2006 and much simpler and much more, you know, it was just like the world was becoming more ready and it really, really changed in that 12 years. And then in the 12 years, 15 years since then, it's changed massively, you know, where we have governments that are, you know, um, Jacinda, what's her surname? Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah she, you know, I mean, her, 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 her sort of policy manifesto is about well-being. I mean, we've got an elected leader in the West that that is her raison d'etre. And, 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 um, uh, and, and we're seeing those things come. Through. I think there's a long way to go, uh, but people's mental health is being taken much more seriously. There's just been a massive sea change in it. Uh, I, I don't think that governments are immediately about to drop GDP. I don't even think they probably should do, but it's not a good measure of whether it's a great place to live or bring up children or, you know, uh, or work or a country, a GDP, isn't it? It's, it's just a, it's just a brute measure of, of economic activity. And, and, you know, so I think we should be worrying much more about carbon. We should be worrying much more about, um, you know, uh, social justice issues and, and inequalities than necessarily just the brute force of an economy. So um, I, I think that's, that's argument is starting to be one, but there's a long way to go. Mm. Yeah. I know when you released the Happy Planet Index, you know, you talked about good lives don't have to cost the earth. Yeah. Um, so for those out there who don't know what the Happy Planet Index is, do you want to delve into that a little bit and, and share what that's all about and, and kind of what they can use it for? Yeah, so it, it's a, it's it's a, it's an advocacy index for sustainability, effectively. In that, I am very critical of the sustainability movement, which I'm part of, for being so negative. You know, it's like it's it, it, it's not an it, it's a it's a scary agenda. They try and scare people into. I wanted to, I wanted to create something where we can think about where we can go that's positive. You know, we you know it, it's it most sustainability issues are the unintended consequences of our lifestyles. I don't think people are deliberately evil in any way about the climate i mean i do think there's businesses that totally ignore it and there's and, and there's and there's very you know there's people that profit out of fossil fuels and things like that who really don't want to change but in a way that's even understandable you know that's uh, so i i think we need to create a positive vision about where we're going rather than just saying we have to do less we have to say about how we have to be more instead instead of saying do less and so the half plan is was it was a plea for that and it's very very simple it just basically says let's measure how good lives are in a country and kind of let's divide that by the ecological footprint, which is the, the the pressure they put on the planet. And so it's like, do you just like you have miles per hour or you know, bang for buck? This is well-being per bit of planet. <laughs> and um, and so and 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 what you get is that you know the, the way we measure well-being in this gross national level is say, well, how long do people live? Which is basically how healthy is a nation. Uh, and how happy they are. And we kind of multiply those together. We bring them together. It's not quite a multiplication. And then we kind of divide that by ecological footprint. Again, it's not quite a division, but it's kind of, um, and we and we basically create a, a list of nations about how well they're doing. So that that's that's the way it works. And, and it basically highlights that some medium development countries are doing better than highly developed ones because they 
are more efficient at, at creating good lives. So Costa Rica comes out top regularly, mm. where people are happier than the USA. They actually have higher life expectancy than the USA, which always surprises Americans that they're happier and live longer. That can't be right. You must have your data wrong. You know, no, it's the data is right. Uh, and they use about a third of the resources, a quarter of the resources. So they're much more efficient. And I think that's what we have to be inspired by. And, and, and in a way, you know, COVID and the pandemic is, is helping us reflect on these things. You know, none of us have really moved over the last 12 months very much. And, uh, uh, where we've been locked down, what have we missed? We've missed other people. We've mm. missed our loved ones, touch, friendships. And, you know, it's, 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 it, it's interesting because it brings us back to the fundamentals. The fundamentals are, you know, do we like our lives? Do we love the people we spend time with? Do we enjoy what we're doing? And, you know, let's step a little lighter on the planet as we go there. So in that sense, I think the Happy Planet Index is, is very timely. And in fact, We've just committed to producing a new one this November, a new index this November, uh, with an old colleague of mine, and uh, to 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 do that uh, in in the there's a big sustainability conference in Glasgow in in November, and we're going to launch it there. So I, I think it's still got a message to be said now. Mm. And talking about the Happy Planet Index, you know, are there any countries that you're kind of seeing over the last few years that are that are really climbing up the ladder? in in a kind of one sort of kind of countries that you need that we should be looking out for for a great life uh well you see if you want to just go for great life you you look at the sort of happiness and well-being of a nation because that's the great experience life now so we have this thing about it there's a tension between good lives now and good lives in the future Mm. and a happy planet tries to look at that tension um so if you if you want to look at where the best nations to live right now they tend to be scandinavian uh, uh and they um you know so i think finland was highest this year but if you look at the happy planet equation you get to sort of latin america you get to some interesting countries like say buddhist countries like vietnam where they are i mean you think vietnam or is that where i want to live well think of south korea you know which it's it's it, it's it's much less happy than Vietnam, um, you know, and yet they've sort of got similar development paths up, you know. So th- there's interesting things that tease out in localities, but it's quite difficult at a whole global level because, and the reality is, is that you know you're Australian, I'm British, I'm probably going to be happiest living in Britain because it's my whole cultural reference point. It's where I feel I belong. So when you move countries, well, you've done it. I haven't done that, you know. A set belonging is quite difficult, I think. Yeah. Mm. yeah it's interesting you know like uh so i've lived in five now and and when people ask me you know which country did you like the most and and i'll always go back to taiwan you know and and for me it was even though i don't speak much of the language but it was always the the friendliest um safest place i have visited on the earth and and it's just an amazing place um but most people don't know about it so it's kind of like no. a hidden gem there. It's predominantly Buddhist, isn't it, Taiwan? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, because the Mandarin speaking. Yeah, well. yeah, and I and I think I think Buddhism is a really interesting cultural way of living, mm. and um, does not mean to say it does not have problems. I mean, I've been to Bhutan sure. quite a few times. I, I I used to advise. Well, I used to. I say I advise. I don't think they really listen to my advice, but I used to work with them on their national indicators of gross national happiness, and. Um, and it, and it is an extraordinary place. It's still deeply hierarchical. Uh, 
deeply gender split, a uh, lot of rural poverty. Uh, but rural poverty in Bhutan, certainly the data shows is much happier than urban poverty in Bhutan. Urban poverty is worse than rural poverty. Mm. And and um, so because uh, they've got access to forest products and land and things like that, even if they haven't actually got any 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 dollar um, or God, I can't remember the Bhutanese currency now. God, it's, it's been quite a long time since it's been about eight years now. But um, um, yeah, so so uh, I can see that all of the pictures of the king. Um, anyway, um, you know, so, so, um, um, and then my head is going, and what's the boots in these guys? Ask me a question, because now I've just gone down, I can't remember. <laughs> all right, we're all down ones. So 2010, you had the, the rare privilege to stand on the TED stage and um, talk about the Happy Planet Index. And, you know, that's that one TED talk now has had around two and a half million views and, and congratulations on that. That's uh, quite a movement to, to be able to get that many people to watch and listen to an idea that you have and share that with the world. You, you talked about the, the five ways of well-being. Uh, and it, it's interesting because any, t- any time you read something about this, everyone's going, oh, it's so simple, but it makes sense. So, you know, what are those five ways of well-being? Yeah, the five ways came out of a project we did in 2008 for the UK Government Office of Science. And and the idea was to mimic five fruit and vegetables a day. Do you have that health message in Australia? Yep. Yeah. So it was very, very prevalent in the UK. And and so five is a healthy number. I mean, that's why we chose five. We're, 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 we're piggybacking on the idea that people think about that. But we tried to get it into what are the behaviours you can do in a daily, weekly basis that promote well-being. So they were supposed to be, they are uh, positive actions that people can take themselves, whatever their circumstance. And they are connect because our relationships are the most important thing for our happiness and well-being. Be active. Physical activity, fastest way out of a bad mood, you know, uh, and, you know, our body and our minds are connected and, and, and keeping both healthy is really, really important. The third is to take notice, which is a plea to be engaged with the world in the moment as well as not be too, you know, yes, be future orientated, but not be too, yes, be learning from the past, but not to bring yourself in the present, savor the moment, notice what's going on for you. You can get into mindfulness, meditation, walking, whatever it is for you, but come into the moment in times. It helps you reflect, helps you understand what's meaningful for you. Keep learning as the fourth one is that we are creatures that are, uh, we need to adapt. Uh, we need to learn. We, life changes around us so be curious try new things uh you know set yourself challenges they're they're very healthy for us some stretch and then the final one of the five is give and evolution is kind of remarkable but we feel really good when we give to other people and of course it helps us from an evolutionary perspective look after the group as well as us an individual but you know humans are very social we're social beings and 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 so uh that giving uh that generosity of giving actually helps build our social contacts. So those are the five, connect, be active, take notice, keep learning and give. And we very deliberately put the social ones at the, at the bookends because a lot of people think that happiness is selfish and it's just nothing could be further from the truth. It's mm-hmm. very, you know, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner once said, happiness is almost a social emotion. And it, and it is, you know, it's very much what's between us. So, um, so in that sense, we wanted to really emphasize that. And what was really fascinating with them is this is a tiny project we did for the government of science. It was less than 10,000 pound project. It, 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 because it was owned by the government, it could travel, you know, we, it wasn't ours. And, and it's just been picked up masses of places. I mean, yes, in Australia, very much in New Zealand, 
uh, particularly post the um was it the canterbury earthquake i think it was canterbury earthquake mm -hmm. was it um, the, uh, they, they picked it up a lot there was how they were thinking about the mental health of the local communities and i i think it it would have supported that whole movement for well-being in in new zealand i mean not it's not a cause of it but it was one of the instruments that they used uh, at that time to to help think about the well-being of the local populations and 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 it's you know you, you, if you Google it, you, you see street art about it. You see youth projects, older people projects. There was even a gay ways to well-being. There was a in Chinese, in, in you know, it's been translated massively. It was in Norwegian kindergartens for some reason. You know, it just went everywhere. And that's the most pleasing thing when you design something and it travels and it's useful to people. So um, uh, it was a, it was, you know, that the Happy Planet Index, you know, two of the, the best things I've managed to do, I think. <laughs> Uh, pretty pretty amazing and obviously over the past uh where are we probably around 15 months where most of the world have been in a state of the the pandemic and, and in many cases still in lockdown and, and there's you know some really challenging times for a lot of people around the world those five ways of well-being are so important during this time and and making sure that we can try and achieve those as much as possible yeah it is and it, yeah i um you know, I've done quite a few talks in the last year, you know, to people about it, you know, online and whatever. And and people, as you said at the beginning, it's sort of there. They just unpack well-being the right amount, I think, is what it is. Doesn't go into too much detail. And we very deliberately design them as an invitation. You know, we're trying to not say connect. We're trying to say connect, try, you know. And and so I, I think in that way, it's they're very friendly um, and, um, and inclusive. You know, anybody can think about how they relate to those. So... Um, that's how they were designed and so you know that we i have had you know quite a few emails over the last year people saying they're using them and whatever and, and that's that's great that they're still useful yeah fantastic and, and and i'm curious you know to kind of get your perspective on this as well we, we've had a lot of companies who are used to having people face to face and around and and connecting in that way um as we have as humans for many many years but over the past 12 months people were shifted to working from home working away from each other and their connection is a little bit different uh when you're now doing it across computer do, do you think uh, how much do you think that's going to have an impact on the well-being of companies moving forward do you think it could improve it because we are potentially being more intimate in in our connection with people through a camera uh, or, or do you think it's actually going to be a real challenge from a well-being, from a, a company collective point of view? I think it's an empirical question. <laughs> um, you know, and I think we should track it. I mean, luckily, we have been tracking data through this, so certainly in the UK. So we've been uh, tracking at a national level. So there's a polling agency in the UK called YouGov. And they've been tracking the weekly mood of the nation, and it's pretty hard hit on people's weekly mood. And I, I really like weekly mood as a way of measuring. So, you know, my my business Friday Pulse, we ask people on a Friday, how have you felt at work this week? And, and that's the basis for our intervention with businesses. And YouGov have been asking a very similar question to population. You know, how, how have you felt this week? And uh, and how many people have felt happy? And there's a huge, huge dip last March. And then coming back towards where we were before in the summer, but not actually getting back there. Uh, and then a huge dip in the autumn as we had more lockdowns and then a little rise at Christmas, huge dip in January, February, March, and then rising back up again now. 
And um, and I think that weekly mood really captures the dynamic nature of it. And what businesses are going to have to do, in my opinion, as a statistician, is is measure it because there's there's winners and losers. I mean, COVID has landed very unevenly on people. Hmm. You know, if you had, you know, if you lived in a, you know, a city apartment with two young children, it was horrendous. You know, you had homeschooling, you couldn't get out. You know, where I live out in the rural thing. Yeah, I had to queue for a supermarket with a mask on, you know, <laughs> and and I, I couldn't go to London anymore. I normally went to London every week for two or three days. Um, I couldn't do that. But it wasn't a massive change in my life. I mean, yes, I felt oppressed like everybody else has, but not nearly as much as some people. And so and not nearly as much, some in my team, you know, and, and the introverts in my team, some of them are quite happy. The extroverts or the ones with young children really, really struggling. And I think we'll find the same with, with this hybrid working, you know, we're going to have some that are really hungry to come back to work. Uh, we'll have some that want to stay at home, but actually maybe they know they're missing out on something. I don't think we're going to go back to five days a week rigidly in the office because the argument that you can't work from home is destroyed because everyone's been able to do it. So that is no longer a valid argument from an employer, you know, so when, um, the CEO of Goldman Sachs came out and said, I think that working from home is an aberration. I think he got a lot of flack. Now, that does not mean to say that Goldman Sachs won't go back to being a mainly in the office, but I think they're going to find it pretty hard to say to people, you can't ever work from home, particularly when people are finding it really easy to focus at home. Mm. So people feel more productive, but they're missing out on the social bit. They're missing out on the creativity. They're finding it quite oppressive in that work-life balance has got really difficult because you don't know that, that, that where work ends, where home end begins. The commute, although it wasn't really good for us, was a way of transitioning between those two personas even. So I think there's going to be really complicated space. And I think the way to do it is to be empirical and, and, and measure it. My imagination is a lot of hybrid working will happen two or three days in the office, two or three days at home. I think that will become the norm mm. in a lot of places. Yeah, and so, you know, you started talking about Friday Pulse there a little bit as well. And you've got kind of two aspects to Friday Pulse. You've got feeling fast and, and thinking slow. And so I, I like those two approaches there. And, you know, feeling fast is around, you know, the little and often behavior changes rather than trying to look at a big change. Is, is that correct? Well, you've done your work. Uh, uh, feeling fast and thinking slow is, is sort of a nod to the great Daniel Kahneman who wrote mm -hmm. the book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And, and we had two ways that we measure experience. So one is a weekly one, which I just said, how do you felt? We also have a quarterly cadence, which is more about the drivers of positive workplaces, uh, positive cultures. And so the feeling fast is really helping teams, particularly very team based, helping them respond to what's gone on last week. So how, what, how, how well did last week go? What went well in the team? What didn't go well? How can we build on what's gone well? How can we tackle what didn't? So it's a very fast loop, feedback loop. I'm thinking in terms of feedback loops, mm. like you, you, you're a learning system. How do you get the right data to the right people at the right time? The thinking slow is the more strategic, you know, how do you do it in an organization, the more thought through bit, which are, which is what actually traditional staff surveys used to try and drive, which was like, we'll understand the data in depth and we'll make a plan. That is still valid. I don't think it's done quick enough annually, but but it's still valid. So we try and do both of those with our, we do do, we don't try, we do do with our, our clients, um, the feeling fast team-based and then the, the thinking slow, which is more strategic longer term way and i think they they feed into um uh something we have in our own lives which is that you know our own happiness 
it's got different wavelengths to it. You can mm. you can have five mood changes in a morning, you know, uh, and and then you can you can you can have good years or even good decades or bad decades. You know, I'm sure you know we're both old enough where we've had we've had bad years, bad bad few years, things that have not gone well for us in life. You know, I got I I, I didn't want to, but I got divorced. I had a bad few years, a difficult few years of a lot of self reflection, a lot of like you know how can I. Uh, how can I not let that happen again? All that sort of stuff, you know, when you go and, and difficult, you know, difficult suddenly setting up home when you're only in forties and, you know, what do you do with your kids? And, and it was, it's challenging. And, 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 but, you know, that's how you've got these different wavelengths and, and the, the sort of thinking slow is more that longer term wavelength and the feeling fast is the more day to day. And, and, and so we're very deliberately designed to support both of those. Hmm. And do you, like you talked a lot about working in companies there, but do you work with individuals much as well, or is it purely a corporate team? At the moment, we very much work team based. Our, our intervention point is really the team and the whole organisation. So we 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 do create tools for individuals. In fact, we've just created a, a free tool for individuals to think about their happiness at work. It's called Friday One. Uh, you can get go to FridayOne.com and just take a free test. It's a bit like one of those sort of 16 personalities myers-briggs tests you know which are fun yeah i would actually claim ours is actually more useful because <laughs> uh, you can actually think about what you do with it rather than just notice that is you so you know going back to that nan thing that you know that that actually counseling therapies like statistics i i like think of our statistics as like a mirror it shows you where you are but it's also a window it shows you where you can go and I think that the 16 personalities is like a really good mirror. It doesn't really show you where you can go with it. Mm -hmm. And so we're very much trying to do both of those things. So by placing in the context of work, you know, you can think about how to make your work better. Who can you go to some support or, or, or what, can, how can you challenge yourself more? Or, you know, personally, maybe take a change, you know, because, you know, clearly sometimes you can't work with an organization or you need to go and do something else. So, you know, they, 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 that's what the Friday one is for is to help you reflect on that. So it's part statistics and part asking you questions about what you can do about it. Yeah, and if I can kind of get you to put a, a futuristic hat on, you know, where do you see the way countries will approach well-being in the future? Um, my optimistic part thinks that more places will go the New Zealand way and start bringing it into their into their budgets let's go as hard as that how do you allocate budgets in countries you know you know i mean there's a big debate in the uk about leveling up areas and i think they're talking purely economically but i think they should think in terms of well-being opportunity uh, as well uh, as that so i i would like to see that but actually i'm a little nervous at the moment you know if we think of the whole Trump years and 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 we seem to be having a politics which is more divided and uh, you know we can talk about whether social media is driving that I think it is but you know it's opened up a bit of a chasm and I I really think there's there's some healing decades nearing needing to come and I don't know I don't feel totally confident we're going to go down that route authoritarianism seems to be slightly on the rise mm -hmm. you know and actually I've, you know COVID has been interesting for that because people have really taken quite authoritarian direction about their life which is kind of interesting in one way it's really appropriate with COVID but you know you're thinking god what are we going to do about that you know how what's our, what's our approach going to be to people who are more vulnerable in, in society who maybe you know stray from the rules of society are we going to get harsher about penalizing them 
are we going to get you know more, less about how do we just, you know prevent that happening how we rehabilitate people i don't know i i worry about that i don't know where we're going to go we we may get more authoritarian around climate that might be quite a good thing i don't know it's, it feels a real real mess at the moment mm. so i don't have a clear answer yeah it's mm. a, when th when crisis hits you generally see the the true leaders step up and and you kind of brought out a good point there where people look up to someone to follow and that's where the authoritarian style worked really really well at the beginning of COVID. those that that focused on giving with 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 a they needed some authoritarian to begin with but then the compassion with it as well versus those countries where we saw leaders who were more self-indulgent and and you could see which countries really thrived over the last um last year and it's, and it's really been those ones that have been giving but have been very clear with where we're with the steps we're taking and people just look up to that for some reason they they find comfort in clarity of we're doing this whether it's the right direction or not they they find comfort in someone actually being clear around what they're saying yeah i mean it was a really scary time a year ago you know it last march you know we you know no one knew what was happening and, and so i think that in that way having a figure that was decisive was probably good i mean we i mean we've had such a mixed bag in the uk with boris you know mm. and uh, uh and 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 the issue really uh, the thing it's very very obvious is that there's, there's, so, there's something in psychology called peak end i don't know if you know about it but how something ends is what we remember mm. very very well he's having a blinding end because we've got we've got vaccines you know going out everywhere and we're so far ahead of europe and, and and the us is doing well with its vaccination but it's been such a mess all the way through it's not really comparable so you know he, he, he's just one of you know local elections massively and whatever like that and even despite the fact we've got one of the highest death rates in europe you know so it's it's a really interesting thing that because he's coming out of it well he's probably going to get a lot of goodwill we'll see really I, you know I'm, I'm i'm not instinctively a boris fan but i you know i don't think he's terrible but uh mm. you know it's an interesting yeah it's interesting and and for you what, what do you do to ensure your own well-being you know what some things that you have you know i suppose over the last year when we've been in in and out of lockdowns etc what has been something that's consistent in in your routine or in your life with regards to your own wellness and well-being well, I, I, I was very lucky in that I um, uh, I rebad about four years ago and I, I don't only love Zoe, I like her. So being locked down with Zoe was not a problem, <laughs> you know, and I, I, we, we kept on looking at each other thinking, God, what happened if this happened five years ago before we met? Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I think that would be quite hard. So so my wife is a massive part of my well-being. Um, and, and for me, walking is my outlet. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been really bad recently. I've got really cross with the weather. We've had a really bad spring and cold, and I haven't been walking nearly as much as I as I normally do. And actually, I'm feeling it in the moment. In fact, I was just saying I must go walking today. But um, walking is really good for me because I, you know, as I said, as I alluded to, I'm not really a creature of speed, but I love the rhythm of one foot in front of the other. I love being outside, in, you know, and there's always something that catches your eye, and I can sort of meditate but also you know i ultimately i'm kind of a creative although i'm a statistician so it helps me think through ideas and, and and sort of being on my own i mean 
I do like walking with Zoe or with friends, but I really quite like walking on my own. Yeah. And talking, you know, about creativity, those that have creative minds, you know, also see really good opportunities or great ideas in the world. You know, what is something that has been on your mind recently that no one ever talks to you about that uh, you want to share with the world? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not sure I have anything to give you on that. I mean, I think I'm, obs I often think that I don't have ideas. Ideas have me. You know, once you, once an idea grabs you, you're in service to the idea. And I'm still in service to this idea at the moment that I think businesses are rubbish at measuring employee experience, that they, they do it really badly. And so Friday Pulse is my answer to that. So at the moment, I'm very much in a sort of execution mode with that, which is that this is an idea that has gripped me for the last eight years. I've now worked out what my Nick approach to it is and i kind of just want to spread that to the world at the moment so this idea of measuring weekly experience building up timelines for businesses putting data right under their nose every week about how every team's feeling so that they can respond when things go badly so that's the big idea that i am in service to at the moment the happy plan index is there to redo i don't know if i've got another idea coming people sometimes ask you know i'm 57 now i was 57 the other week and um you know what am i going to do when i retire and i i don't know i do know i'll go back to being a therapist when i'm in my 70s and grizzly and gray and look like father christmas with a big stomach <laughs> i that's what i'll probably go and do because i do like talking to young people and i think i'll probably do that but i got another 10 years of this to go yet which is persuading the corporate world that they need to measure it. So I'm working on a book at the moment about that. Hopefully that'll be out next year. And and I and I'm trying to grow a business about that because we we produce something that our our clients love. And just, you know, uh and, and I think it's really useful to them. I'm actually amazed when I talk to CEOs how often they look at the data. I kind of thought I was gonna have to push the data to them. And we do push the data, but actually the ones that engage, they look at it every week because they want to know. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? The last time I did something for the first time. Uh... <laughs> so my little obsession at the moment is my sister gave me a game of bar skittles for my birthday last month. And I don't know if you know bar skittles, it's got like a big pole and a, and a wire, like a, like a sort of one of those things you see in a building site for destroying buildings, a ball goes around and you've got these nine skittles and you, you've basically got to throw it once and you've got to try and hit all nine skittles down in one go. And I've only got seven in one go so far. Uh, I, you, I can get it to do nine if I let it roll round and round, but actually the rules are you only allow one swing and you have to hit them all down. So uh, that's my little a friend came around last night and we were trying to work out, we, none, neither of us, none of us can work out how you do it. You watch a YouTube video and someone manages to do it and I can't work out how you do that. So that's a funny little thing I'm trying for the first time. But at the moment, I'm, I'm also very engaged with a, with a building project. I mean, we've been rebuilding a house. So I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm, I probably should try some new things. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What is the, I think I probably know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Um, well, you're probably going to think, how can people be happier? I think that the biggest thing for us to solve is how do we live sustainably as a species? Because it's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of what I, in, you know, when I was in my late 20s, I thought that's 
I, I have a, I have some something to give to the world. It's some statistical skills and whatever. We've all got things we can give. And I think when you do it in the service of something bigger than you, that's when you feel most empowered in life. And so I decided that's the thing. It felt like it's the the, the question of our generation. It's not to say there aren't other ones, but it's the one I chose. So I think climate for me is the biggest one. Is like, how can we live happily and sustainably, I think is the biggest question. Uh, and, and it's not easy. I use far too many resources, even though I try and make the house and building as an eco house and everything like that. I've still got masses of embedded carbon in there. And I've still got far too many rooms for what I really need. You know, I can't really kid myself. that I, and I think it's a really, really difficult question mm. about, about how we do that societies. And, and we, how we do it without a lot of human suffering about having to sort of reduce our population back to two, three billion, you know, you can see how we can be sustainable much more easily at two, three billion than we can be at 10, 12, but we're going to be 10, 12. So how do we do it? Mm. Big, big question. Fascinating. And for you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Um, so I think there are two big drivers, which are pleasure and meaning in our lives and purpose. And I think, that a great life is one that you not only feel you're you're contributing, but you enjoy. And I think you can find people who 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 go too much for enjoyment and go too much in hedonism and don't do enough, you know. And I think you can find people the other way who are very much about what do I do for others and they're very dry. I I, I think do both of those and you've got a great life, you know, that is enjoyable and meaningful purposeful contributing giving to others that, that i think that's for me that's the good life mm. nick you've shared some great insights today and, and you've had a very fruitful fruitful career around looking at well-being and, and how can we connect more effectively as people and and enjoy that quality of life so how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you the best way for people to connect with me is LinkedIn. It's the only real social, if, if you call that social media that I do. I mean, I post there every couple of weeks. And if you so if you can find me, Nick Marks, I have no K in Nick, so N-I-C Marks. It makes me easier to find. That's a good thing. Um, and um, my business is called Friday Pulse, fridaypulse.com. You can find out about there. Uh, you know, we've got videos and blah, blah. So if you're interested in doing something like this with your team or your organization, we've got, uh, we've got, things for you there and for yourself it's friday1.com which is you can go and check your own happiness at work i do have my own website it's called nickmarks.org someone had got.com so i've got the org but i do it's, it's where i sort of do my um, speaking sort of stuff but that's obviously dried up the last year um and i don't really know i want to go back to being a speaker going around really so much podcast so much nicer yeah, yeah. Do it from home <laughs> and, and, and you talk straight to people, you know, yeah, sometimes I used to fly around the world to, you know, speak to 500 people. It's like, you know, we're doing more than that here now. So it, I, I think it's a better medium. Um, and, and in a way, you know, I, I like the way podcasts, you hear the tone of people's voices. I think whereas when you're on a stage, you, you kind of get into performance and uh, I can do that. I do quite enjoy it. It's good for my ego. But I don't know if it's good for my soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure speaking with you today. You've got a lot of great insights. And, and just, you know, I loved hearing about your journey from growing up in a, in a household that was of, of business people that were very successful in the confectionery world to, you know, finding that, that space in your life where you weren't really sure about where you fitted and, and where you were going to go and what was going to happen 
to then you know really starting to delve into quality of life and and what is happiness and and how can we measure the way that people are living their lives in different countries around the world and and how can companies look at their their weekly wellness and think and happiness and think about how they can improve that each time you're doing some remarkable work and I, and I really want to you know congratulate you on what you're doing for this world it's not just saying something you're out there producing something that actually really helps people and for those out there who think it's all around making something complex and and thinking that it needs to be to be big and large to, to have an impact no it, it's actually about making things simple so people understand it and can actually then implement it easily so congratulations on what you've been able to achieve there and once again thank you so much for being on the active ceo podcast today thank you very much it's time for you to join the inspiring great leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au share this podcast on linkedin and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders we would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.